Welcome to Rast Talk, a podcast on recirculating aquaculture and sustainable food production. Brought to you by Rastec, the premier publication for Rast professionals and Ontario Creates. I'm your host, Marilyn de Guzman, and I'd like to welcome you to our very first podcast episode. I'm also happy to introduce my co-host, Brian Vinci, who, have, who has generously agreed to be our regular co-host for Rast Talk. Brian is the director of the Conservation Fund Freshwater Institute. Welcome, Brian. Thank you, Marilyn. So before we introduce our first our guest today, Brian, tell us what's the latest at the Freshwater Institute that you'd like our listeners to know about. We have a bunch of studies going on right now, uh, primarily with Atlantic salmon in our land-based recirculating aquaculture system, uh, semi-commercial scale facility. One of the most interesting studies we're working on right now is a purging of off flavor from salmon. Uh, we were lucky enough to be funded through a two-year Sea Grant project. And part of that project is looking at the kinetics of, of uh, removing off flavor uh, from fish uh, that are at harvest size. Uh, we just finished uh, two studies and looked at the effect of water exchange rate on purging, as well as uh, initial concentrations of off flavor. So th- those are the, the most recent studies we're working on. And of course, we're looking forward to our aquaculture innovation workshop uh, that will be held in April and May of 2020. Uh, we're getting ready for that, uh, developing the program. In fact, our guest today, Eric, will be um, one of our speakers at the innovation workshop. Yeah, well, that's a good segue as we introduce now our first guest for our very first episode. So in this episode of Rast Talk, we explore the U.S. state of Maine. As many of you know, Maine has been making the aquaculture headlines in recent years as a Rast destination. With several major projects on the way to build state-of-the-art land-based aquaculture farms in this eastern U.S. state. Our guest today is from one of those companies, as Brian has mentioned. In fact, his is the first to announce a major RAS build in Maine. We'd like to welcome Eric Heim, president at Nordic Aquafarms. Welcome, Eric. Thank you. Happy to be on the show. You're the first mover to invest in Maine for your land-based farm here in the U.S. Why is it that you've chosen this state over other uh, states in the U.S.? Uh, it, it was really a result of a, of a process where we work our way through uh, looking at the U.S. as a whole and uh, ended up really doing a scientific mapping on the east coast of the U.S. And it's always like this for projects like this, that your site selection is a critical part uh, of the success for any project. Um, It's many, many variables come together in a a final choice choice there. But in in the end, what really were important factors for us in in targeting Maine and uh, final site were couple of really important things uh, as far as salmon production goes. Um, we we spent a lot of time looking at uh, the access to clean uh, cold water resources, uh, both fresh and seawater. Um, and another you know thing that Maine has going for it is a strong seafood heritage and a brand. Uh, it has a, a very nice brand position for seafood that uh, companies can build on. Property access uh, is fairly good in Maine, uh, although it's not necessarily always easy to find appropriate or large enough properties nearby the ocean due to other types of development, but uh, still good access. And what we discovered as we started exploring is really a strong political support for this kind of development on the local and state level. 
A couple of final points is permitting authorities has experience with aquaculture. Uh, regulatory processes is a really important piece of making things work. And the addition of academic institutions in marine sciences in the state, which is an asset for anybody looking to come here. So that's really where we ended up on, on the final site after probably walking 20 sites uh, that we assessed to be technically strong and also a very nice community for staff to bring their families uh, in the future. Right. Since you've announced your intention to come into Maine, there's been a lot of developments. Um, where are you at right now? Yeah, it's been quite a journey in Maine, I would say. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, right now, we are in the very final stretch of, uh, of what you would uh, define as the permitting process. Typically, a process like this for us uh, starts with an initial identification of a site and call it an early due diligence. And that's followed by a more rigorous due diligence. And then you go into the actual permitting process, developing the whole documentation basis for permit applications. And then the, when you submitted those, you really go into the phase with the authorities and the process of working through uh, all the permit applications uh, to arrive at a final result. And right now we're at the very end of that process. Right. Um, there's also been, uh, I guess, challenges on the part of the public-facing side of all this, of this whole endeavor. Um, can you talk about the challenges in that part and how Nordic Aquafarms has the strategy for uh, winning public support and correcting, honestly, a lot, a lot of the misinformation? Yeah, I think, you know, it's a really important topic. Um, aquaculture has, you know, had its... Uh, its journey in the U.S., it's had its up and downs. Uh, there's some baggage, there's myths about aquaculture. Ross is fairly new to a lot of people, and even the knowledge about aquaculture in general is very variable in the U.S. Um, so we are currently engaged in five different locations internationally. Um, so public engagement has always been a part of our process as we look at establishing uh, projects. So typically what we do is we stage public meetings, we do newsletters, we always have an open door policy in our offices for people to come in. And like in our US company, uh, projects, we have a community liaison on site in, in all of these. But every, I mean, location is different and it can be challenging to foresee social dynamics in some locations. Um, and so in Maine, what we generally seen is a very broad support uh, politically, uh, from the state to local level and in general public, but we do have pockets of people who do not agree with this kind of development. And that's sort of been a you know an important part of the process we've had in Maine is to sort of relate to that, listen to that, respond to that, and, and move things forward. Obviously, the state is very receptive to these types of investments. Was that surprising how group seems to have a lot of ammunition in terms of opposing this project or other projects, I guess, in the space? Well, I guess, I mean, there's plenty of examples of aquaculture projects, you know, having to work through these kinds of issues, different places in the U.S. and elsewhere. Um, I think it's, many times it's difficult to predict exactly how those dynamics play out, and it's it's very important to be sensitive to local issues and work through them. Um, sometimes these differences can be ideological, and that's when it becomes more challenging because facts don't necessarily matter. 
And, and I guess that's probably uh, some of that we've seen in Maine that nobody really here in the state had predicted would emerge. Mm -hmm. um, but it did emerge and it, for a number of reasons, uh, ranging from opinions about how the authorities did rezoning for the property and the other issues. And, uh, and so, you know, from our point of view, um, we are usually in a position where we always try to be preemptive. Uh, sometimes that, you know, does a lot of good work. And part of that in our case in Maine has also, you know, gained a lot of support for us. But then again, sometimes not everybody's on board with that. And that's just something you have to be prepared for and to navigate. Right. And you can't win everybody, right? <laughs> no, that's uh, that's how it is sometimes. Yeah, I, I think we can um, uh, talk about some of the more specifics about the projects. And I think uh, Brian um, has some questions for you uh, in that uh, regard. Eric, I'd like to take you back to your site selection process. Um, when we work with stakeholders who are interested in uh, building a land-based RAS facility in the U.S., <clears throat> we often tell them uh, it's water in, space, and water out, meaning you have to have a good influent water supply for your facility, you have to have space to build on, and you have to have the ability to discharge the water. And in your, your process, as you described, you hit on all of those. You talked about good supply of fresh and salt water. Um, you talked about the branding uh, that was um, that Maine has for seafood, also property access and political support and, and permitting. And so those are our processes align very much. And I wondered which one of those uh, has been the most difficult uh, for you as you've been citing in the US? Was it hardest to find? Uh, the influent water, was the property uh, the issue, or uh, the regulatory permitting the most challenging when selecting the site? Um, I think, you know, every every site is different. And, you know, in my experience, having done this for a few years, uh, every site has trade-offs. And that's usually what it comes down to, so weighing up the trade-offs in, in these cases. I think in general, it's sort of having uh, the different variables come together in an optimal way and with the sort of trade-offs not being too significant. Um, another thing I didn't mention is, for example, infrastructure, connecting infrastructure. What do you have in the area that, to, that can support a project like this? Um, so, you know, I think in, in Maine, um, actually finding sites with good uh, fresh and seawater access is challenging. Uh, particularly if you want to ensure that you have clean water. Um, and so that's definitely an issue. Um, it was challenging to find seaside properties, um, uh, also from a point of view that much of the coast in Maine has a, a decent elevation difference from the waterline uh, inwards, or you have very shallow mud, mud flats going out from the, uh, from the coastal areas. So all of these sort of things come together and uh, every site has different attributes. And in the end, it's about making things match in an optimal way. And that's where we ended up, what we did in terms yeah. of the problems for this. Good information. Marilyn mentioned that you've had to consider the public support issues there in Belfast. And I wondered of these uh, site selection parameters that you mentioned, uh, now that you're pretty well into the process and, and getting close to um, construction, which one of these has been your biggest challenge? And you know, what has 
what has been your your biggest um, lessons learned there? I think uh, probably uh, the the challenge with some of these pockets of opposition, and, and I think the the real challenge is that uh, some of it is is ideological, uh, and that makes it much harder to have a discussion about facts. Um, and it, it takes a lot of resources to uh, engage and to follow up and uh, and to uh, address issues along the way. So that's that's perhaps been the, the part of the process that we or other local politicians and stakeholders have not really anticipated. I think you know one of the learnings from that is that you know really uh, all, I don't know in the end what we could have done differently in this location. Um, but the preemptive element and so on of stakeholder work is in any location extremely important. Uh, and also, you know, being resilient in terms of working your way through these things. That's that's something every project should have on the radar. We've done the same in California as well and and have achieved uh, pretty good uh, results and broad support in the community there. We have not had the same issues as in Maine. So every site is and location is different in total in terms of social dynamics. Eric, that's a wonderful response. And for our listeners out there who are uh, working on their own projects, I think that's uh, critical information that that you just uh, provided. That the resources required to address some of these um, social, economic, political issues um, can be uh, can be a burden. Can be uh, something mm-hmm. that you have to. Uh, to build into your planning and, and your own staffing and uh, that you need to be resilient. So yeah. I think that's wonderful. I, I, um, I've been out to the California site many years ago and um, they are very much trying to attract a business there. So when I heard the news that you were going out there, um, I thought, wow, that's great. They, they were able to finally attract a company to the site in, in Humboldt Bay. It's, uh, it's been a very um, uh, good community to work with. On the other side of that, you you get you're you're also getting a uh, huge support from certain parts of the community. Are you able to take advantage of that? Just putting out there that you know it's not just opposition, but you're also getting um, support from the community. Yeah, I think you know when you look at it, we have uh, a very good collaboration with scientific uh, and environmental organizations in Maine, um, both uh, University of New England and University of Maine. Uh, we work well with the uh, uh, with the Gulf of Maine Research Institute, uh, the Conservation Law Foundation, and also had a good uh, history with the Salmon Federation up here. So uh, you know, there's a lot of really enth- big enthusiasm and support for this uh, in many places. Um, in terms of a local, I guess we have a unique situation where a local NGO has been formed to support aquaculture and facts finding uh, in in the permitting process. And they're, in, the, in our case, they're called the, the Fisher OK. If you look at the community we're in, it's also a lot of people with families and uh, children looking to looking for a future where their kids will find good paying jobs along the coastline of Maine. Because as of today, a lot of young people are leaving these communities. Uh, and that's obviously something that in the long term for coastal development, uh, it's important to find work opportunities for young people with an education and those without an education. So that's why we also seeing a lot of support because working for uh, waterfront uh, aquaculture type of activities is something that young people are, many young people are enthusiastic about. Uh, shifting gears a little from the project uh, macro level, 
down to some of the RAS details. Um, I was curious if you were willing to share who's completing uh, the RAS design and construction of your facility in Belfast. So uh, I guess I worked with uh, quite a few RAS vendors uh, through the years. So I sort of got, got a good cross-section from uh, various projects and various vendors and so on. And in the end, uh, it's important to keep in mind that any RAS uh, design planning effort is always multidisciplinary. It, you know, the production planning, bioplanning side of these efforts really must drive the efforts. So as of today, in our situation, uh, we have somewhat of a unique setup because we have 15 engineers and designers employed in the company. Uh, many of those uh, were picked up from the company Interaqua in Denmark. We were pioneers in the Rossin industry. I'm sure you know some of them, Brian. Um, so they are currently our design division in the company and also have installation management. So as such, on the pure RAS side, design side, we're self-sufficient. Uh, but, but the other side of this is also experienced production people. Um, I've dealt with uh, vendors who have lots of engineers but have little practical experience with actually producing fish and the bioplanning uh, as such. So, so what we have emphasized from early on is to bring engineers, designers, and our senior production people together in the design process from the early stage. Uh, and they work in concert throughout the uh, maturation of the designs to arrive at a, fi a final design. So as of today, we have a portfolio of uh, various modular designs uh, in the company and that are developed in-house. You mentioned that you're doing it in-house and that you found that some, some of the other design teams out in the industry are uh, the most strong when they have people who've actually raised fish and, and have that hands-on experience. And that's been our experience here at the Freshwater Institute when we're talking with stakeholders or designers, is that those folks who actually have raised fish and had to do the bioplanning to make sure the fish were moving through their facility and out through production to grow out purging and harvesting yeah. have the best have the best sense of what it really takes to uh, to grow the fish and where the design uh, pinch points can be yeah. so that's one that's wonderful that your uh, your in-house folks like the folks from Interaqua are, are bringing that uh, to the table you mentioned that the designs are might be somewhat modular so that begs the question will the the farm in Belfast and the farm in, in Humboldt Bay, will they be identical? Yeah, I mean, there's always, of course, local adjustment in relation to site and connecting infrastructure and so on, but the core production designs are based on the same modular portfolio. Uh, so this has been a key sort of objective for us is to standardize modular concepts so we have uh, ability to reuse them and leverage them from facility to facility. We do work with two different species, so and there are differences in, in some of the designs depending on the species you're pursuing. But yeah, uh, Maine uh, is definitely sort of a front runner for what we're doing in California. You mentioned you're working with two different species and it's uh, salmon and... So we run the largest kingfish ross operation in the world in Denmark, and also have a large marine hatchery in Denmark for kingfish, yellowtail kingfish. So at those facilities that you have already operating, like the one for Kingfish in Denmark, what has been your biggest operating challenge in getting the facility to produce at a level that um, you're happy with or was designed for? 
Well, I think, uh, so for example, if you take kingfish versus salmon, uh, it's, it's quite a different approach. Um, I think, you know, what we spend a lot of time and resources in Denmark is just uh, getting a marine hatchery up to uh, targeted yields. It's a very different production process with live feed and uh, broodstock. Uh, broodstock. Um, so we probably spent a couple of years uh, optimizing that production process and learning, given that there weren't a whole lot of large hatcheries for Yellowtail and that, at the mm -hmm. time internationally. Um, other things, I think, you know, just for any company looking to go into this, I, just understanding and being well prepared for the commissioning process. A lot of things, you know, can go wrong in the very initial startup phase in terms of pieces of equipment and everything and monitoring that and being on top of that uh, and being able to respond efficiently to that will make, call it a startup of these facilities much smoother. So we've had tremendous learning from this in our facilities that we can leverage today. Other things is still, you know, when you go into larger facilities, biomass control, uh, optimizing your feeding, all these things is a, is a process. And, you know, having experienced staff on board is critical to really be on top of that. So these are things we all worked through and learned a lot from. Um, and I think that's sort of a message to other startups, too, that, you know, considering going into this is really making sure you have experienced staff on early in the process and also into your commissioning phase and on. Eric, I'm aware that you have Cajal Deneen on staff, and I knew Cajal when he was at the Kutera uh, Salmon Facility in British Columbia. I wonder, uh, Cajal's very experienced operating uh, manager, I wonder how hard it's been for you to pick up other people like that onto the team um, for Nordic Aqua. Well, uh, certainly, you know, when uh, when you see in this Im industry emerging, there's not a whole lot of people with that kind of a track record, right, in the market. There's a few, but not many. Um, uh, and it's not given, particularly depending on where you decide to locate. I mean, some areas may be easier to find in a, you know, experienced staff than others geographically. Um, I'd say that we've been fairly successful so far. Uh, the strategy has really been to establish a core of experienced people and then uh, scale on that and train staff. So we have also Roger Fredrickson in Norway with some 30 years experience in salmon production. He actually initially started one of the very first land-based projects in Norway back in the 80s, one of the really, really early pioneers. We have pioneers in the team in Denmark, uh, Ivar, um, where Hansen, which you probably know, has been some 30 years in the industry. We've been lucky to pick one of the most experienced people in Maine, uh, David Noyes, who's been working with the USDA and others with Ross. So, but um, I think the, the key strategy for companies in this segment is to successfully attract a core of experienced people and scale from that. And so far, I think we've done a decent job and we have more job ahead of us. And, and to pick up on that point uh, in terms of the staffing challenges, uh, and I imagine as you know, more RAS projects uh, get underway, challenges of finding the right skilled people is just going to be magnified. What are your thoughts on training people? Well, we've, we've looked at uh, sort of education programs in Norway. We've had discussions with academic institutions, both on the East and the West Coast. And what I generally find in the U.S. is very keen interest from institutions to have conversations about uh, what kind of people do we need to educate in the future to support these industries. 
what we've been emphasizing a lot is integration of practical experience in the programs um, so that they educate people who who have a sort of a practical understanding uh, when they become candidates for hire and uh, so we've seen we see it's like in Maine, for example, you have the research facilities in Franklin, uh, where people can get hands-on experience. Uh, and I, you know, I think that's critically important. So that speaks a little bit to the infrastructure uh, that universities have and their collaboration programs with existing and future ROS facilities, so they can get practical experience. I also want to go back on another point. Uh, when we're talking about Kingfish, so Yellowtail, you have your operations already in place in Denmark for that. Are there any plans? And I know um, Kingfish Zealand has expressed uh, its intention to set up a, a facility as well in, in Maine. Is that something uh, that you're considering to uh, diversify the species that you're are farming in the U.S., or is that going to stay in Europe for now? So kingfish, uh, we have no plans for kingfish in, in Maine, and uh, sea lion are good friends of ours, and they know this. So uh, in the future, uh, it, of course, we have not made any decisions in the U.S. regarding kingfish, or in Europe for that matter. Currently, we are focused on expanding our operation in Denmark. What the future will bring, um, I don't know. We'll see. But our, our main push in the U.S. is on salmon. Eric, you mentioned uh, the USDA facility in Franklin. Um, the Freshwater Institute was very involved in the design of the recirculation systems there. And that is a, a program, the National Center for Cold Water Marine Aquaculture, that is a genetics improvement, a, a salmon broodstock facility, essentially for improving salmon strains for use in North America. I was wondering if you have had any discussions with them and um, plan to potentially work with them in the future on developing uh, a strain of Atlantic salmon for use in the Nordic Aqua facility? Yeah, so we've been sort of following their work on the St. John River strain, which is maybe what you're referring to. Uh, they did some great work up there. Uh, you know, generally what, what we are hoping to see is that some good supply options for, for salmon um, do, uh, eggs do emerge in the U.S. I guess one of the challenges right now is that a lot of the Ross industry is looking for all female eggs to, uh, to reduce uh, early maturation. And uh, Franklin uh, is a little bit away from you know, arriving at a, at a good supply option for that. But uh, we're definitely very supportive of any domestic efforts to bring up domestic supply. I think that's a wonderful thing. And we'll, we'll retain uh, contact with them. One of our key employees used to work there. So uh, we definitely support that and we'll follow it forward and we'll see that where that takes us. Yeah, we raised all-female strain Atlantic salmon in our last grow-out trial, uh, both diploid and triploid. And we found... Uh, they performed very well. We had relatively low maturation in the diploid population, approximately 12% uh, of those fish uh, matured early. And in the triploid population, we saw 0% uh, percent maturation, which was a wonderful result. We did see some deformities in the triploid salmon, which um, is it is to be expected. Um, so, yeah, I, I, um, I think USDA has a good program up there. And and hopefully you're, you're able to sit down and um, bring some of them about uh, potential options. Right now, 
what are your options for bringing in salmon eggs to the facility in Maine? Well, we we have been sort of, we have been following some of the U.S. options. Riverance is also doing some work, as you probably know. Uh, currently, the main supply for Ross producers in the U.S. for all female is from Iceland. Um, they've done a pretty good job at uh, uh, at developing a professional operation in Iceland, uh, so that is a, a good a viable option. Um, but you know, from our perspective, the more we can source domestically, it's the better it is particularly if we can get good strains coming up like the ones in progress right now. The challenge is really that, you know, it takes time to develop a robust uh, alternative for Ross. And like you're saying, you're looking at all female and triploid types of programs, and these things take time. So um, we're supportive and, um, and uh, we'll be following them and we have contact and dialogue there and we'll see, you know, where it takes them and us. Great. I was a little curious about um, your marketing and how you intend to market the product. Um, will you be building a, a Nordic Aqua brand? And then in addition to that, are you thinking about any certifications for your uh, product from the Nordic facility in Belfast? Uh, sure. So uh, we are uh, we are developing a U.S. Uh, brand strategy. Our priority now has been, been to work through permitting which has taken a lot of time and resources uh, to put it that way. But uh, we do have experienced marketing staff on the ground here. And so that's something that we'll be pursuing a little bit more this year, um, probably with some events uh, like taking in some of our, we had taken in our kingfish a few times to US. We'll be doing the same with our salmon uh, this year, most likely. Uh, in terms of certification, yes. So we're uh, ASC certified in Denmark. Uh, here in Maine, um, it's very likely we are going to pursue BAP certification, possibly a secondary certification. But we need to be a little bit further along uh, before we can uh, initiate that process. Great. I look forward to uh, tasting some of your products uh, in the U.S. in 2020. Um, one of your competitors, another salmon grower in the market, Superior Fresh, um, has obtained a certification that they are uh, essentially non-GMO throughout their production process. Um, will Nordic Aqua do the same? You know, what is happening in the feed market now, I think is really exciting. Um, and, you know, you're referring to the Superior Fresh and of course, Steve, Steven Sommerfeld has been a great figure for promotion in the US. Some context there, you know, in, in Europe, GMO is not really an issue. So this is kind of a different playing field in the US. Um, our company has clearly communicated uh, GMO of GIA strategy of GMO avoidance since day one, uh, in addition to uh, alternative feed ingredients and uh, natural ingredients. So that's something we've been working on for quite a while. Uh, what we have noticed here, though, there's currently a debate going on between the, in the feed industry in the use of the terms GMO-free versus no GMO added. And it seems like there is an ongoing process here, depending on the feed supplier in terms of what standards the industry should fall down on. And I think, you know, part of the challenge with that, it can be very confusing for consumers. Uh, so what we are doing right now, uh, we've been working and sourcing a feed for quite a while, and we're, we're still a little bit away from buying feed, but uh, we're definitely going down that road uh, talking to all the different feed suppliers to, to arrive at, you know, the best possible uh, GMO uh, strategy. Part of the non-GMO feed claim challenge is access to volume of feed that actually meets that criteria 100% today. 
And that's going to be a development that's going to be very interesting to follow in the next couple of years and see how that develops. But our target is definitely in that direction. Eric, I just, uh, in wrapping up uh, for me, I want to thank you for being open to all the questions and uh, providing your experience to our listeners. Uh, some tremendous lessons you've learned are now being passed on to others. Marilyn? Yes, uh, thank you. Uh, I echo uh, Brian in, in thanking you for spending the time discussing the developments in your company and in, in Maine in particular. I'm sure we'll have you uh, again in one of our future episodes, uh, Eric, because uh, there's certainly lots more to talk about. You keep learning that every week, despite how many years you've been in this industry. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you, never, you should never stop learning. Uh, that's that's how this industry will develop into something really exciting in the in the next decade. Well, that concludes our episode today. But before we go, I'd like to remind everyone about our upcoming RASTEC 2020 Conference and Trade Show happening on November 16th and 17th at the Weston Hilton Head Resort in South Carolina. You can find more information at www.ras-tech.com. That's ras-tec.com. And also, for the latest news and updates around the world on recirculating aquaculture systems, check out our website at www.rastechmagazine.com. Tune in next time for another engaging episode of RAS Talk.